can see from where you are, but we have some flowers up here. We don't always have flowers on the platform, but we have some beautiful white roses and carnations up here in this beautiful bouquet. Uh, yesterday, if you had been here, um, you would have seen that there was flowers all over the place up here because we had a memorial service for Jeanette Brillhart. And so um, they left some of these for us to enjoy this morning, which is a, a blessing. But the flowers remind me, I, I need to tell you this story. Um, so, so the Brillhart family has been a part of our church family for a long time. And this is Brian's mother who passed away. And so when I met last week to plan the service with them, uh, I met with Brian's dad and, his, and with Brian. And we, we talked about his mom and what, how we would do the service and all that kind of stuff, which is what I always do when we're doing a memorial service. And so um, when I met with his dad, he just was chomping at the bit to tell me this story about how he met his wife. And, and so um, he told me this story, and I'm going to share it with you because it blew my mind. Um, so the year is 1951, and Bob Brillhart is stationed in Morocco in the U.S. Navy, okay? And he's over there, and he has a bunch of responsibilities, and one of his responsibilities is he's the guy that delivers the mail to the different departments, because you know how important it is when wartime mail comes from overseas, and it's such a big deal to get mail for the soldiers and the sailors and all of that. So his job is to make sure the mail gets distributed when it shows up. So he has to take it to each different department and give it to the commanding officers, and as he's giving the mail to this one commanding officer... Um, there's a letter that's addressed to the commanding officer. And so he sees it on top and he opens it up. And as he opens it up, um, something falls out. So Bob bends down, picks up this thing that falls out. And it's a picture of the most stunning girl he's ever seen. And so he looks at this being a sailor stationed overseas. And he looks at this and goes, who is that? And he says, that's my 17-year-old daughter. And he said, um, would it be okay if I write to her? And he says, sure, go ahead. So he begins writing to this young lady in Boston, and he starts getting letters back, and they just develop this relationship through letters so that finally when it's over and he's allowed to come home and the ship docks, all the guys that get off the ship after all that time at sea, they're just looking for the first bar they can find and all that kind of stuff, and they're just, just running for these places. But not Bob. What he's doing is finding a bus so that he can make his way to Boston and meet this girl. But he doesn't have enough bus fare, so he's hitchhiking half the way. He's walking when he has to walk. He's like thumbing rides, taking cabs, doing everything he can, and he's never been in a big city in his whole life, and now he's in Boston, and he's looking for this house, this address that he has, and he finally, after all of this, finds the place, walks up, knocks on the door, they open the door, and he says, I'm here to see Jeanette, and they said, she's not home. And, and he says, well, what do you mean she's not home? I've come like 10,000 miles to see her. When is she going to be home? And they said, um, she's just out for a little while. She should be home really soon. Why don't you come in and wait for her? So he comes into the living room and sits down, and he's waiting for her when suddenly the door opens, and this most stunning creature he's ever seen in a white dress walks into the living room, and he looks at her and says, I'm going to marry that girl. 62 years later, we did her memorial service yesterday. Is that cool? Right? That's like something that um, they should make a movie out of, like The Notebook or something, right? <laughs> so, um, so I was just really struck by that story. But as I thought about it more, the thing that struck me the most is that little picture that fell out of the envelope. 
And just the strange coincidence of that, right? I mean, just imagine if that picture never fell out of that envelope. The, the people that were here at that service um, yesterday, probably at least half the group was family, right? We're talking about three children. We're talking about nine grandchildren. We're talking about 10 great-grandchildren, all of their spouses and all their progeny moving forward. They would not exist if it wasn't for that letter falling out of that envelope. Isn't it amazing to think how everything could turn on a dime? Isn't it amazing to think how God seems to direct our paths to a place where he says, in this moment, you don't know this, but in this moment, everything's going to change for you. I'm going to set your life on a course that you have never imagined or could never dream of experiencing before. Now, if my wife were here, she would be able to tell you a very similar story about when she met me and just couldn't get me off of her mind and <laughs> how she basically stalked me because I didn't really notice that she was alive and how she just wouldn't give up and chased me down until finally I gave in and went out with her or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember it was something like that. I don't remember all the details, but, but I was just so shocked to think about how those, because all of us now, a lot of us have relationships with people that we would look back and go, isn't it weird how we met? Or isn't it weird how that, that happened? And what if this hadn't happened? And what if that hadn't happened? And I don't want to get all crazy and philosophical and think about theories of what would have happened otherwise. I know that God has everything in his hands and he works everything out. But isn't it amazing to think about how, are the, how there are these moments that turn out to be crossroads in our lives? And we didn't even realize it at the time. We know... Um, about some of these moments in Jesus' ministry. We've been talking for weeks now about how Jesus calls us and, and that his calling for us is not just a calling to come to him, but a calling to come with him. And we know, for example, about the, um, the four fishermen, right? Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they're there at their boats and dealing with their nets, and along comes Jesus, and he just says, come with me, and they just drop everything. And the scripture says, they left their nets and their boats and their business and followed Jesus. Now, when they followed him, it wasn't for an hour, it wasn't for a day, it was forever, right? Can you imagine for a second, let's just take Peter, for example, because Peter would be the one to do this. Let's say that Jesus comes along and says to Peter and Andrew, follow me. And Peter says, you know, um, Jesus, listen, we have been investigating you and looking into you, and we're really interested in you, and we're interested in your teaching, and we think you're a great rabbi, and we really want to be involved with you. It's just that right now, I understand you don't know about the fishing business, but in our business, this is our busy season. And actually, we just got this new boat, and we just had these new nets. They just came in from Amazon.com. They were just delivered, and we are ready to go, and the big catch is coming in the next two weeks. So, you know, I appreciate the offer, and I'm interested in everything, and it's not that I don't want to follow you. In fact, next time you're in town, drop by, because I'd love to hear from you again. I'd love to see you. Just imagine if that had been Peter's response, to stay in his boat and keep mending his nets instead of saying yes and following Jesus. What a dramatic difference that made in his life, right? What a tragedy it would have been if he had all these good reasons why now is not the time and now is not the place for me to drop everything and go and follow Jesus. We have another example that's very much like that, right? We have the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, listen, 
I really, really am interested in these things that you're saying, and I want to know, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and knows his heart and understands that his whole life is wrapped up, his whole identity is in his wealth and in his possessions. And Jesus says to him, for you, you need to sell everything that you have, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. It's the same calling, come to me. Same calling that he gave the fisherman. He gives this calling to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler's response is to think about all that it would cost him to do that. And the scripture, and one of really the saddest parts of the New Testament, the scripture says that he went away that day with his head down because he was a man who owned much property. And it just didn't make sense to him to say, I'm willing to walk away from all of that in order to walk with you, with you Jesus. And it makes you wonder what would have happened in his life if he had just said yes during that time. Would we have had a story of 13 disciples? If he had just said yes, if he had just been willing to walk with Jesus, did it make a big difference in Peter's life that he said yes? And did it make a big difference in this young man's life when he said no? All the difference in the world. So as we wrap up this series of messages about answering this call to come with Jesus, I think it's only fair for me to do my best to help you to grapple with and, and understand the difference it makes in your life, how you respond to the calls of Jesus. And so uh, here's what we're going to do. We'll, I want you to think about it this way, and we'll do this real quick. This is going to be an audience participation kind of thing. There's some, somebody sitting next to you, whether they're your spouse or a stranger, whoever they are. I just want you to get with somebody by you, and I want you to tell them, when you were a little kid, who did you really want to be like when you grew up? Okay, quick, go. Okay, get your focus back up here. That is your break from having to focus on me. Now you're going to focus, okay? Um, how many of you was this person like some kind of celebrity or, or well-known person? Okay, how many of it was a, said it was a family member, like a parent or an old sibling or something like that? There's all these different kinds of people that we look up to. Some, I looked up to all these athletes because I was into sports growing up, and I, wanted to, I had a whole list of the guys that I wanted to be like. Um, but when it comes right down to it for me, if you had asked me as a kid, who do you want to be like when you grow up, there would be no need to talk about it, no need to think about it. I wouldn't have to consider it. There would be one answer, and it would come out of my mouth immediately. I wanted to be like my brother. That was it. Now, I have a brother who's 12 years older than me. His name is Mike. So when you picture um, a 12-year difference, right, you don't end up with the sibling rivalry and all that other kind of stuff. I had this other brother, Eric, who's two years older, and I hated his guts, right? But Mike was a different story. Mike, Mike was a, a sports hero in our town, and um, he was an All-American athlete in high school, and there was never a time in our house where 
We didn't have multiple newspaper clippings on our refrigerator of him and the latest touchdown that he scored and the latest home run that he hit or how he's led this team to victory. And he was literally like a celebrity in our town because everybody knew him and all the professional scouts were there to watch him play and all that kind of stuff. And on top of that, um, he was a surfer. So we lived near the ocean. And so on the, on the weekends, he would throw surfboards on his car and head down to the beach, okay, which is exceptionally cool. On top of that, he had the best-looking girlfriends all the time, right? He was always dating the head cheerleader and, and all that kind of stuff. He was like the homecoming king at school. It was just ridiculous, right? So I'm this little kid of five when he is, what, like 17, so to me, he is this larger-than-life character, and I'm just thinking, man, if there's anything I could do in my life, I just want to be like my brother one day. As Christians, there's only one person that the Scripture calls us to be like, and who's that? Jesus, right? It's an easy answer. When you read the four Gospels, you see this amazing picture of who Jesus is and how he walked, and he exemplified for us this abundant life that God uh, sent him to give us. And there's no greater success in life, no matter who you are, what you believe, or what you've been taught, there's no greater success in life than to be like Jesus. That's it. The more you become like Jesus, the more successful you are. The Bible tells us, for example, that we should be compassionate, right? Well, Jesus doesn't just know that he should be compassionate. The scripture tells us over and over that when he sees sick people, what does he do? He heals them. When he sees hungry people, what does he do? He feeds them. Over and over and over again, Jesus meets needs. But what's interesting is not just that he's this great miracle worker who walks around going, okay, you're healed, you raised from the dead, you, uh, your leprosy is cured, you demon out. He doesn't just go around and do that. But over and over and over, the scripture tells us that he is confronted with somebody who is hurting and suffering. And the scripture will say something like this, and Jesus moved with compassion, reached out and touched him and cleansed him of his leprosy. There, there's so many stories like this in the Gospels. Jesus moved with compassion, did this, or he did that. When he, he was walking into a town and he saw this funeral procession coming out and they're carrying the casket and he gets the news that this is a widow and her only husband has died and now her only son has died. and She's left all alone and, and hopeless and helpless and she's mourning as the funeral procession goes out to bury her son and Jesus looks upon this funeral procession, hears about her situation and feeling compassion for her, it says, he goes and touches the casket and says, arise, and the boy sits up in the casket, which would freaketh me out, <laughs> right? He sits up in the casket, and the scripture says, she, he returns him alive to his mother because he felt compassion for her. So Jesus doesn't just know that God says, I want you to be compassionate. Jesus does something about the compassion. And I think there's a lot of Christians today who know that we're supposed to be compassionate, and we may even feel some compassion when we see people who are hurting, but we're just so focused on our own little world and all the things that are important to us that there's really no time to stop and do anything about those people who are in need. And so we just sort of maybe say a little prayer, or we just sort of shake it off and pretend we didn't see it, and we don't express the compassion of God. But if you're going to actually be like Jesus, 
It has to go beyond what you think and what you feel into what you do, right? The scripture tells us to be prayerful. And yet Jesus doesn't just say, oh, I should be prayerful. I wish I had more time to pray. I wish I was better with prayer, which is what I say, which is what so many of you say. I wish I was better. I know I should pray more. The scripture says that no matter how busy he was, Jesus would get up while it was still dark in the morning, and he would go off to a lonely place, and they would come looking for him, and they would find him, and what would he be doing? Praying. He's God. Like, what does he pray for? But he prays. The scripture tells us that we should love our enemies. Jesus not only goes to the cross to pay the price for our sin, we who were yet enemies with God, but the scripture tells us that in going to the cross, he is falsely tried and convicted. He is beaten and tortured in multiple times by multiple people. He is forced to carry his own cross up the hill while people jeer at him and mock him and throw things at him and spit at him. He is then nailed to the cross and put up naked for everyone to see, bleeding to death. And while he's bleeding to death, they are shouting insults at him and spitting at him. And what does Jesus do while he's on the cross? Praise for the people who've done this to him. See, that goes way beyond I know I should love my enemies to actually living it out. So Jesus is this unbelievable example for us. And over and over and over again, the Bible tells us to be imitators of him. To think how he thinks. To love what he loves. To hate what he hates. To act like he acts. And it says that we're to have the same attitude that he has. And so as we continually answer this call to walk with him, we're going to have to um, continually come to a point where we say, am I going to actually be like Jesus here? Or is this all theoretical for me? And I want to make a foundational point today. And uh, it's a point that I've made before multiple times over the years. And there are these certain points that um, people call Dougisms that I come up with and make over and over these same points. And people go, man, when is he going to talk about something else? And the answer is, as soon as we get down the stuff I've already said, I'll start talking about something else. But until then, there are some foundational things. And one of those absolutely foundational things that we have to get right or we cannot build a life that is pleasing to God is this. Jesus is doing something very specific in our lives. And I want to show you what it is. Go to Romans chapter 8. Very well-known passage. The book of Romans, right after Acts and before 1 Corinthians, New Testament. Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read you two verses. And these are familiar verses to almost everybody in this room. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a great promise? That God causes all things to work together for good. Now, it doesn't tell us that all things are good. If it said that, it would be lying, right? Not all things are good. We all deal with things that are just flat out bad, just not good. And so he doesn't say that all things are good, but he says that God takes all things... And he works them together for good. 
And so that means that nothing actually passes into our lives without first passing through the fingers of God. And that when God is allowing something in our lives, he is not only allowing it and then going, let's see how they deal with this one, but he's actually allowing it and working in our lives as he allows it to do something good. And we get confused by this verse because we like to define what the good is. So we say things like, well, I know I lost my job, but the scripture says God causes all things to work together for good. So that must mean I'm going to get a promotion and a better paycheck at a better company. That's not what it says. We don't get to define what the good is. And we don't need to define what the good is. And the reason is because the context of the scripture defines what the good is in verse 29. Verse 28, all things work together for good to those uh, who love God are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So this idea of what the good is, I'll tell you what the good is. The good is that we become conformed to the image of Jesus. That's it. Not sometimes, every time. Whatever God is doing, whatever God is allowing, how many times have you just put your hand on your head and said, what in the world is God doing? Right? I can answer the question for you every time. He's trying to conform you to the image of Christ. That's what he's doing. That's all he's doing. If you just understand that, that's what he's doing in your life. He is constantly trying to take who you are, where you are, and what's going on with you, and use it to mold and sculpt and shape you so that when you come out, you will be mature, which means you'll be like Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's just trying to make us like Christ. Now, that is an absolutely foundational truth because when we understand that, it changes the way we interpret everything that happens in our lives, right? Are we going to fight it when God is trying to mold us into the image of Christ? You may say no, but we know from experience that we fight it all the time, don't we? We fight it all the time. And we've got to stop and go, wait a minute, what am I fighting against? I'm fighting against becoming like Christ, which is the only definition of really success in my life. To be pleasing to God by becoming like Christ. That's what he's doing in me. And I'm fighting this. And here's the thing I could tell you about God. God loves you so much. When he allows something into your life or even brings a trial into your life that he intends to use to shape you and you fight it off and run from it and refuse to be shaped by what God is trying to do, he loves you so much that he will chase you down like a hound from heaven and he will bring more difficulty into your life so that you can be molded into the image of Jesus. He loves you too much to not do that. So that's what he's doing. We need to remember this principle because if we're going to be serious about hearing this call of Jesus and answering this call to become like him, we need to understand that this call is all about us becoming like him. It starts with answering the call to come to him. Now, let me show you an example of how this works. Go to the Gospel of John. If you're in Romans, it's two books to your left. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And we just celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and that's the context of this passage in John 13. He's just about to serve the bread and the wine, but before he does that, um, this is the famous story where Jesus gets up from the table, strips off his clothes, wraps a towel around his waist, gets down on his knees, and scrubs the filthy feet of his disciples, right? So as Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, do you think that's an awkward moment for them? Really awkward. 
because every one of them understands he's the Lord and master and I am his disciple. If anybody is going to serve somebody, I should be serving him. And yet he insists upon serving me. And when he gets done with all of this foot washing and all of his explaining to Peter and all that kind of stuff, when he gets done with all of that, in verse 13, listen to what he says, John 13, 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The blessing, the, the conforming to the image of Christ comes when we actually follow his example and live as he lived. And so he's using this example of foot washing and he's saying, look, I know that this is awkward for you guys because you know that you're the ones who ought to be serving me, right? But I'm going to serve you. And he's doing this for multiple reasons, but not the least of which is the reason he explains, which is I'm doing this as an example for you to follow. If I, the Lord and teacher, am willing to get down and scrub your feet, you ought to be willing to serve others as well. And I'm giving you this example to follow, and you will be blessed because you'll be conformed to my image if you do it too. And this is, I think, where the disconnect happens for a whole lot of people who name the name of Christ. We appreciate the things that Jesus did. We are glad for the way that Jesus has um, behaved toward us. We recognize Jesus' character and, and we understand the, um, the integrity and the morality of all that Jesus did. And we're blown away and we sit and go, wow, isn't Jesus great? And we don't make the connection to, and that's how I should be too. And so we know that the scripture says we should feel compassion. So we see somebody who's hurting and we might go, oh man, what a bummer. I'm on my way. I'm, I'm too busy. I can't be stopped. I mean, I have to be at work and I'm already late because I overslept and there's traffic and there's no way for me to stop and help this kid who's crying on the side of the, of the uh, curb there and I don't know what's going on with him. I guess maybe I'll pray for him and just go. And we so consistent, consistently allow ourselves to be distracted by the things of this world that are so important in our scope that we forget that Jesus actually called us to lay down our lives and serve other people. It's not enough to be compassionate. It's not enough to believe in prayer. We need to be people of prayer. This is another one of the things that I'm just ashamed of in my life. I know what my prayer life is supposed to look like, and I've been following Jesus for 35 years, and I've never become the man of prayer that God calls me to be. You know, at some point, you just have to stop and go, I have to actually put into practice the things that I believe. And if we're going to actually grow and be conformed into the image of Christ, we're going to have to do the things that he calls us to do. Walking with Jesus involves doing those things. Does Jesus serve other people? And so should we. Does Jesus reach out to hurting people? Then that needs to be normative in our lives too. Does Jesus lay down his life for other people? We need to be willing to do that too. Otherwise, how can we honestly, sincerely, and seriously call ourselves followers of Jesus who are nothing like him? When he goes somewhere, we don't go there. What's the definition of a follower? 
I want to show you another passage that will speak into this, and it too is a well-known passage in the book of Philippians. And it seems like I'm always coming to this passage. It's right after Ephesians and before Colossians and Philippians chapter 2. Because I think this is such a foundational passage, it gives us a picture not just of what Jesus did, like washing feet, but what motivated him to do what he did. Matthew, I'm not Matthew, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude. Now, if you write in your Bible, you want to highlight the word attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Jesus' life, serving people and being obedient to his Father meant that he had to actually hang on a cross. Very few Christians ever have to hang on a cross. We're seeing in the Middle East uh, and in Africa, we're seeing more and more persecution of Christians today that is just horrifying us. But even that is such a small number compared to the number of Christians everywhere. And, and most of us um, really don't undergo much persecution at all because we're followers of Jesus. Uh, and we're blessed in that way, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, so when he's talking about being willing to go to the cross, he's not just talking about actually having to go through certain kinds of persecution. The key word in the whole passage is attitude. We need to have the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ says, I am here to glorify my Father and serve the people he loves. That's what I'm here for. And when my heart reflects that attitude, my actions always follow. And so instead of trying to put things into our lives that will force us to do the right thing, maybe we need to start getting used to pushing into our relationship with God so that we become more like Him on the inside. And that what happens on the inside then spills over to the outside and we begin to live like Jesus because we have the heart of Jesus. So I want to get practical and I want us to think about this in our own lives because it would be such a mistake if we leave here today and go, well, yeah, I guess I need to do better at that and then off to my life. I want you to actually get practical and personal with this. So I want you to think about this. What if, what if for one day, 24 hours, for one day, Jesus was to become you? Now, let me tell you what I mean. I just want you to envision this. What if Jesus walked in your shoes for a day? He had to live where you live and deal with your relationships, the people that you know. He had to work at your job with your boss. He had to be married to your spouse. He had to have your parents. He had to be, you know, go to the classes that you have to go to. He had the friends that you have. What would it be like if your challenges that you face every day became Jesus' challenges on a given day? Your pain becomes his pain. Your opportunities become his opportunities. What if for one day, Jesus became you, except for one thing, he kept his heart? So we'd have the heart and the attitude of Jesus in the life situation that you live in every day. And I want you to literally form a mental picture of this in your mind. What would it be like if Jesus' heart was beating in your chest and you were living for the things that he lives for? What if the heart of Jesus became your heart? Do you think that that day would be any different than the other days of your life? What if Jesus' priorities 
determined your actions. What if the things that Jesus is absolutely passionate about dictated your behavior? What if his love was the motivation for the way that you dealt with people? Would your life be any different if Jesus' heart ruled your life tomorrow? And do you think anybody would notice? Your family, your friends, your co-workers, the strangers you pass on the street. Do you think anybody would stop and go, wow, what is it with her? I mean, what, what, what's different about that guy? I mean, look at how they're living. Do you think anybody would notice that? Would they see, for instance, more joy in your life? Or would you still be ruled by your circumstances? Would they uh, receive more compassion and understanding and mercy and grace from you than they're used to receiving? And what about you on the inside? Would it feel different for you? Think it would have any impact on your moods? They would have any, play any role in your perspective and the way that you look at what's going on around you? Do you think it would affect your fears, your worries, your values, the things that matter to you the most? See, I have to admit that when I think this way, I would have to say that if Jesus' pure heart was beating in my life, that day would be totally different for me. Totally different. And it wouldn't take people but a moment to notice. That picture that you have in your head of what your life would be like if Jesus' heart was in you, I want you to get that mental image and save it to your hard drive. And don't ever lose it. And here's why. That picture that you have of your life lived with Jesus' heart, that's God's vision for your life. That's it. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a person who says, Jesus is going to have such access to my heart that the things that come out of my life will be the things that Jesus pours in, and that's it. And so if you go, what would it look like for me to be a totally successful person? It would look like you living your life with Jesus' heart. And the things that are in your life that would have to go if it was Jesus' heart, those things would have to go. And the things in your life that you would embrace if you had Jesus' heart, you're going to have to embrace those things. And if you could get a picture of yourself walking with Jesus' heart, now you know the, the trajectory that your life is supposed to be on because that's what God has in mind for you. That is what Jesus had in mind when he spoke about the abundant life. He said, I came that they might have life and that more abundantly. What was he talking about? Was he talking about that all of your illnesses would be healed? Was he talking about that all your bills would be paid? Was he talking about that all your wishes would be made true? No, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about something so far beyond that in value that we can't even fathom it. He's talking about what it would look like if your life was conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's what will gradually happen as you continually answer his call to come with him. I'm talking here about a transformed life. I'm not talking about some minor adjustments. I'm talking about being a whole different person. And, and let's be honest, that's where it gets tricky for us. Because for some reason, we hang on to the junk in our lives that we've come to get used to, don't we? 
We just get used to the way that we live our lives and we hold on and we say, I'm not going to let anybody take this away from me. Even though it's making us miserable, we just hold on to it thinking that somehow the life that we're living is more valuable than the life God has in mind for us. There was a, a homeless man. And, uh, you know, he was one of these guys who was perpetually homeless. He wasn't looking for a home. He wasn't looking for a shelter. He, he lived on the streets. He had built his life around it. He'd been there for decades. And he had his system and his way of doing things. And he slept in a certain park bench. And he had a, um, you know, a um, basket that he pushed that had all of his belongings in it. And he knew an area where there were multiple restaurants. And if you went behind the alley of the restaurants and you dug through the trash cans, you would find that they threw out food and you could get some of the food that was left over and he would eat in the alley out of the trash cans. And behind the pizza place, he would sometimes find a pizza box with an extra piece that, that didn't get eaten and he would sit and eat pizza. And behind the chicken place, he would sit and he would find that people didn't eat all the meat off of their chicken bones and he would pull it out and he would eat what was left on the chicken bones as he sat in that alley. And this is the the way that he lived, and this is what he was used to. And one day, there was a restaurant owner, and there was a gourmet restaurant that was just a couple doors down from the chicken place. And the restaurant owner came out at the end of the night into the alley, and he had a trash bag, and he was bringing out the trash, and he looked, and he sees this guy sitting there by the dumpster, and he's just like gnawing on some gristle that's left on a chicken bone and trying to get some more food. And he's just sitting there and eating it, and the, and the man is moved with compassion. He looks at him and he thinks, my God, I have a five-star restaurant. I'm going to throw out good food tonight. This guy's probably not had a good meal in 20 years. So he walks over to the man and he introduces himself and he says, listen, just two doors down, we have this five-star restaurant and we're just closing up, but the whole staff is still here. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you in. We'll have a table for you that's candlelit. And, and you can order anything you want on the menu, and we will make you a gourmet meal. And you could just sit and enjoy, and as long as it takes you to enjoy, we're just going to wait. This is going to be our gift to you. And the man looks at him, and he looks down at his chicken bones, and he pulls the chicken bones aside, and he begins to move away from the man, and he says, you're just trying to distract me so you can get my chicken. We cling to stuff that is so worthless. And God says, I have a feast for you. I have a life for you that can only be described as abundant. A life for you that can only be described as overflowing. A life for you that can only be described as transformational. And you're sitting there gnawing on chicken bones. See, this calling that Jesus has this calling to come to him, it's an invitation. What does his invitation mean? It means that you are not stuck being selfish and cynical and bitter. God wants to change your life. It means that you don't have to go on living with fear and anxiety and worry and doubt. God wants to change your life. And that's what he is inviting you to when he says, come with me. He's not asking you to somehow trade in your riches for his poverty. Quite the opposite. He's saying, look, throw the chicken bones away. There's a gourmet meal waiting for you. Come with me.
I'll give you life that you never dreamed of. And that's why he is inviting us. And that's why he's saying to us, listen, not just once, but every day, all throughout the day, come with me. And watch what I do with your life when I get to be in charge. So in these past few weeks, I've done what I can to try to help paint a picture for all of us of what it means when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, with his arms outstretched, looking at us and what we're dealing with and saying, I have something so much better for you. Come with me. And so I guess as we wrap up this series of messages, it leaves me really with just one question. As Jesus stands with his arms outstretched saying, come to me, the question is this, what are you waiting for? 